Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 7th of June, 2022. And get this, man, it's 599 of Bitcoin. And we are closing in on the 600th episode really quick. 600 episodes. Gotta admit, man, that's not not anything to sneeze at. Uh, My apologies for not coming to you, but once last week, it's just been weird. As you know, if you listened to last, uh, the last show that I did, I am going to be moving this summer to Eastern Washington state and I'm talking way East Washington, nowhere close to Seattle or fricking Tacoma or any of the hotbeds of weirdness and the zombie nation that is forming before our very eyes. And if you can't see that, that the zombie nation is, in fact, forming before our very eyes, I can't help you. And, you know, it's sad to watch, but thankfully this shit is going on, at at least it's not just going on in the United States. It is the entire, what you would call the West, right? The West. They don't put up with this bullshit south of Mexico, by the way. And they don't put up with this bullshit pretty much anywhere on the continent of Africa, and they certainly don't put up with this bullshit in China, India, and pretty much anywhere else, especially the Middle East. But no, we're we're in the grips of the zombification of the nation. And it sucks, man. It totally sucks. But, you know, this is where we're at, y'all. Bitcoin fixes this. <clears throat> Not immediately, but in the long run and probably for good. And we're going to start talking about why that's going to occur right now. Well, we got to get over this one first. Bad day for Binance with SEC investigation and a Reuters expose. Oh, chicanery going down at an exchange? Who would have guessed? Derek Anderson has it for Cointelegraph. The SEC is investigating whether Binance Holdings broke securities rules when it launched its BNB token in an additional coin offering five years ago, Bloomberg reported on Monday. Pausing to remind you that Ripple and XRP is an an unlisted, unregistered security. And they've been, the SEC has been battling with Brad Garlinghouse and his crew of fucking miscreants for a long, long time. Uh, If, if the SEC takes down Binance before they take down XRP and those assholes over at Ripple, we've got a huge problem. Not because I'm cheering for for Binance. Look, I don't give a shit. BNB is probably an unregistered security. Most of this shit is. But I would much rather have to deal with Binance's bullshit token than Brad Garlinghouse and all his crew of miscreants. Let's continue. Binance is the world's largest crypto exchange and BNB is the fifth largest cryptocurrency 
The BNB ICO took place in July 2017 on several platforms during the height of the so-called ICO boom and the Binance exchange opened just days afterward. According to Bloomberg, citing unnamed people familiar with the matter, at least one U.S. resident claimed to have taken part in the ICO, which could be a crucial fact for an SEC case if the agency chooses to pursue one. The SEC has claimed most cryptocurrencies are securities and have brought cases against a number of ICO projects. Binance founder and CEO Shengpeng Zhao, often known as CZ, said in a 2020 blog post that the wording of the BNB white paper was changed in January of 2019 because the potential for being misunderstood as a security is higher in certain regions. Binance's American arm, Binance.us, was created later that year. Also on May 6th, Reuters published a lengthy special report alleging that Binance processed at least $235 billion of transactions from hacks, investment frauds, and narcotic sales between 2017 and 2021, and had weak know-your-customer and anti-money laundering protections for those years. Among other cases, Reuters mentions the hacking of Eterbase, with some of the proceeds being laundered through Binance by North Korean hacker group Lazarus and Binance's association with Russian-language drug Mart Hydra. A Binance spokesperson disputed Reuters' findings, and the exchange told Forbes in a statement that the report is a woefully misinformed op-ed that uses outdated information from 2019 and unverified personal attestations. Binance is already the object of several U.S. federal investigations, including another SEC probe. The United States Commodity Futures Trading Commission began its investigation of the exchange's trading practices last year. Binance Markets, its United Kingdom branch, was ordered by the Financial Conduct Authority to cease activities in that country after a review of its operations last year. Additionally, Binance was ordered to cease operations in Ontario of last June or Ontario last June, although it remained active in the Canadian province well until March of this year. Binance and CZ in trouble with the SEC. Will anything come of it? I don't know. Does it, has anything come of the, the Ripple and XRP investigation? I mean, that's just a shit show. I doubt very seriously, I doubt very seriously indeed that the SEC is going to have anything that they're going to be able to bring against Binance because if they can't do it against these idiots over at Ripple, what hope do they have at Binance? I mean, it's just, again, this this is why Bitcoin, because I don't have to worry about any of this. I don't hold XRP, so I don't give a shit about the SEC's probe into XRP and Ripple and all those guys. I don't hold BNB, so I don't give a shit what the fuck happens to Binance. I don't care. I literally don't care. That entire exchange can be lit on fire, thrown in a dumpster, and then pushed off a cliff. And it will not change the temperature of my pool one degree, even though I don't technically own a swimming pool. Now, <clears throat> this one from Bitcoin Magazine, being written by Tom Luogno, I think is how you pronounce his name, has JP Morgan become Bitcoin's best friend? <laughs> yeah, probably not. There was a lot of fanfare made recently over an investment note from JP Morgan Chase, which seemed to elevate Bitcoin over real estate and other traditional asset classes as the alternative asset of choice. A May 25th investor note made the argument that Bitcoin was around 28% undervalued 
and that the bank was targeting an upside price of around $38,000 per coin. In effect, making an argument for Bitcoin's recent price weakness being overdone relative to real estate, private equity, and private debt. On the surface, this seemed to be a big change from the one major money center U.S. bank whose CEO, Jamie Dimon, refuses categorically to jump on board the Bitcoin bandwagon, if anything. Dimon's antipathy to Bitcoin rivals only that of European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde, the felon. Yes, that's right. She, if you don't know, Christine Lagarde was found guilty in a French court of misdealings in financial matters a couple of years back. And now she's president of the ECB. So there's, there's how, if, if you were ever wondering, is it possible that there's, you know, criminal elements at the highest orders of, you know, world government? Yes. Yes, there is. And her name is Christine Lagarde, along with a whole bunch of other ones, which I won't mention here. Anyway, she continues to peddle the idea that Bitcoin has no value because, of course, it lacks the backing of a central bank and or government. This is Diamond's public beef with Bitcoin as well. He's been very clear about this. Bitcoin doesn't matter because it has no official support or backing, he says, since JPM Morgan or sorry, J.P. Morgan, is one of the shareholders of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Let's read that again so you know. Since J.P. Morgan is one of the shareholders of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Gee, shareholder, that sounds like a private company to me. Federal Reserve thought that, yeah, let that sink in. Anyway, you really can't blame him for talking his book, just like Lagarde or another famous Bitcoin hater, Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway. So what about this investor's note? Well, as always, the devil is in the details. The first thing to remember, remember is that this is a so-called sell-side analyst's note, meaning it is the opinion of analysts within J.P. Morgan of where investors should put their money preferentially under current market conditions. It has nothing to do with the opinion of the CEO of the company. Anyone who thinks Diamond would be mucking around in the depths of his investment banking sell-side division to grind his personal acts against Bitcoin simply doesn't understand how a company like J.P. Morgan Chase works. Even Diamond himself has said as much. In an interview in May of 2021, he said the following, quote, I'm not a Bitcoin supporter. I don't care about Bitcoin. I have no interest in it. On the other hand, clients are interested and I don't tell clients what to do. Blockchain is real. We use it. But people have to remember that a currency is supported by the taxing authority of a country, the rule of law, a central bank, end quote. God that's scary, dude. There are a lot of ideas in these quotes from Diamond. He's the CEO of one of the largest, most powerful and influential banks in the world, and he maintains that business by being smart enough to give his customers what they want, even if he himself is not interested in that product and or is working on products which are tangentially its competition. His sell-side analysts aren't paid to be his mouthpiece. They are paid to see things clearly and present an investment thesis to clients and get them to sign over some funds to make the bank a broker's fee. And it's nothing more complicated than that. That said, however, if that was all there was to the story, eh, I wouldn't be writing the article. There is more to it than that. JP Morgan, along with the rest of Wall Street, is in a real pickle. <clears throat> for the past 14 years, for the most part, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates near the zero bound. At zero bound interest rates, Traditional bank revenue models collapsed to zero as well. 
net interest margin, or NIM, is supposed to be the core business of a bank. NIM is the difference between what the bank pays you for your deposits to loan them out to investors at a higher rate. The bank charges X, you get 30% to 50% of X, and the bank keeps the rest. That, quote, rest, end quote, is NIM. And NIM is a dead letter office on the quarterly earnings report of most major banks in the era of coordinated central bank policy. Instead, the banks have engaged in ever more esoteric investment banking and trading schemes to make money while looking on their traditional depositor customers as some albatross that they have to deal with in order to keep the regulators at bay. As such, then, Bitcoin and other digital assets have become just another source of funds for banks to tap to sell other structured products to high-value investors, which is where they make the bulk of the money anymore. Enter the sell side talking up Bitcoin at crucial moments in the market. Honestly, when that investor note was published and Bitcoin was clinging desperately to technical support around $29,000 per coin, by the way, which is kind of still there, I'm hard-pressed not to believe that was the signal to the market that JPM itself had decided it had accumulated enough Bitcoin to stuff into some line item on its balance sheet. Bitcoin is big business now, and with the shift in hashing power from China to the United States over the last couple of years, there is more interest than ever in finding ways to sell cryptocurrency-related products to investors, while Wall Street finds ways to accumulate on pullbacks while amping up the FUD whenever the price rallies. Why do you think Diamond hates Bitcoin? It's not because it's a challenge to his company's business. It's for the same reason that he and Munger hate gold. Munger can't lobby some government official to create a one-way trade for him to invest in it, and Diamond can't structure a product around it to build a regularly occurring income stream from it. There's no business for them there. There is no profit selling you a fund once or twice that holds Bitcoin in a cold wallet. How can they come up with their 2 and 20 income streams on something people just want to buy and hold for the end of times? This is why, from the very beginning, Diamond and people like him have only had eyes for Ethereum and DeFi, while decrying Bitcoin as having no there there. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Bitcoin, like gold and other assets that exist independently of the financial system, what Credit Suisse's Zoltan Posar recently termed outside money, are the very things that have the capability of reestablishing financial discipline on the world. But that puts at risk the very nature of the existing system. Even though that system is creaking along on its last legs and both Munger and Diamond understand this better than anyone, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general are fighting an insurrectionist fight attempting to reverse the wealth extraction dynamic of the existing system. Remember, Diamond and the rest of the New York boys have made their trillions on extracting rent or unearned wealth from the world through the Cantillion effect of being close to the source of new money. Diamond has no interest in giving any amount of breathing room to something that threatens that. But at the same time, he and JP Morgan are trapped by being major players trying to stay afloat as that system is being drained of its pool of real capital. This is what best explains the mixed signals coming from his organization. The market is slowly but surely choosing outside assets to preserve wealth while JPM and the rest of the New York boys all make their money by manipulating the cost of inside assets to keep returns high enough to staunch the outflow. In effect, 
We are now in a race toward an uncertain future, one where there are major forces vying for market share during this breakdown of the old system and the establishment of a new one, or multiple new ones. Men like Diamond and the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab will fight tooth and claw to remain relevant players going forward, and this is why JP Morgan, on the one hand, can and will recommend Bitcoin to its family office and investment client houses, but on the other, spend billions developing a payment layer to replace SWIFT. In fact, I find the fight surrounding Ripple or XRP to be far more interesting than whether or not Diamond and JP Morgan are finding ways to make money with Bitcoin. Diamond is backing his product through consensus. Schwab and the WEF, the WEF or World Economic Forum, are backing Ripple. And in my view, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission lawsuit was a poison pill left behind by outgoing SEC Chair Jay Clayton for Gary Gensler while everyone works to slow down the real crypto revolution where none of these oligarchs and rent seekers are needed any longer. This is the real promise of Bitcoin and JPMs. High net worth investor clients are finally, for the first time in decades, truly becoming scared of where things are headed financially. Schwab and the WEF have laid out their plans for the future, a fully tracked and cataloged life for all people live, living wholly within a digital identity that decides for you what your range of actions in the real world are allowed to be. Too fat? No pizza. Wrong politics? No job. Haven't dated a tranny? No healthcare. In that world, there is precious little need for banks like JPM or your local credit union. That is the threat that I know Diamond perceives is on the horizon. He wasn't at this year's Davos, but other members of the New York Boys Club were, like Larry Fink of BlackRock and Brian Moynihan of Bank of America, just to name a couple. JP Morgan is no friend to Bitcoin, but Diamond is fully aware of the real threats to not only the current system, in which he's a central player, but also to any and all potential escape routes desired by his very best customers. This is why I can see him happily allowing Bitcoin to develop to undermine Schwab and the WEF while simultaneously working to undermine it in the long run with his own preferred solutions. Personally, I think he's doomed to fail, as I think Schwab is as well. The way in which both of them appear to succeed in the short term will be frustrating as hell for Bitcoin enthusiasts to watch, but they are both fighting against a tide whose time is long overdue. Never in the history of capital markets have commodity prices been this cheap relative to that of equities or debt assets. Bitcoin being the first derivative of energy to procure commodities in the real world where real wealth is built is then, by extension, criminally undervalued as well. Diamond, Schwab, and their lieutenants at the Fed and the ECB can keep the flow of their overhauled Oh, sorry, overvalued dollars and euros high to reinforce their dominance, but they also need to restrict their supply to keep inflation from eroding the political power from which their currencies, by their own admission, derive their market share. That is the catch-22 that Diamond and JP Morgan find themselves in today. Friend or foe, Bitcoin don't care. It will just keep accreting value and building a network strong enough to allow us to ignore their grand dreams of global control. <laughs> That's actually a good piece as to what's going on with why it is that, because this is like the third time that something's come out of JPM that sounds like they're cozying up to, to Bitcoin. And then Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of said bank, will turn around and say something completely shitty about it. This should not come as a surprise. 
I mean, basically everybody, everybody's a hedge fund manager. Like if you're, everybody's always hedging their own shit. Even if it's going to two different stores to buy groceries, that's sort of a form of a hedge. You go to the place where you can't, you can't get, I don't know, leaks anywhere else in town, but this one store, but all the rest of your shit, you go down to Walmart for, okay? That's sort of like a hedge. We all do it. Jamie Dimon's doing the exact same shit. Most of these people are doing the exact same shit. And I also agree that we're, well, I don't, he didn't really come out right out and say it, but there was an allusion to the fact that, you know, we keep talking about the, the battle to come between Bitcoin and, you know, central banks. And I always use the term a blade of armor when it comes to using all the ICOs and shit coins around that have popped up around Bitcoin as sort of sacrificial lambs and cannon fodder that will take the ire of all these governmental organizations and regulatory bodies, it, take the ire of that first. And by the time the SEC and the CFTC and the rest of the world's regulatory bodies figure out that they're out of ammunition, the only thing left standing is Bitcoin because they wasted all their energy on the low hanging fruit, which actually wasn't of any value whatsoever in the first fucking place, but it was easy to go after. That's why it's a blade of armor. But now the illusion this person made, the Tom, the illusion that he made in this article brings to light something that I really wasn't thinking of before. I always just kind of assumed in the back of my head that Jamie Dimon was just as much of a friend to Klaus Schwab as any else that we look at, like Christine Lagarde, uh, the fat boy from the uh, BIS, the was a Bank of International Settlements. I can't remember his name right. Oh, uh, Augustus. Yes, Augustus, Burgermeister. I always assumed that they were all just the absolute best buddies. That's a stupid way to think. I guarantee you there's just as much infighting going on between all the people that we look at as some kind of unified front against humanity, because they kind of are. But if Jamie Dimon is really like going, you know what, I'm, I don't trust you guys as much as I could throw you off a cliff, so I'm going to go ahead and hedge my bets. He ain't the only one then. If that's what he's doing, he ain't the only one. And if we see a rift inside the quote-unquote new world order that's literally just infighting between people like Jamie Dimon, who has a shit ton of power, and Klaus Schwab, who somehow or another, even though he's produced nothing, even Jamie Dimon has produced more than Klaus Schwab, but be that as it may, if he starts fighting with Klaus Schwab, who somehow or another has a lot of power, well, they could tear themselves up from the inside and they also become a blade of armor to Bitcoin because while they're busy fighting amongst themselves, Bitcoin network continues to grow. Blocks continue to be validated. Transactions continue to flow. More and more people run Bitcoin full nodes. More and more people learn how to do it. We have, we have just as much chance of success today as we did last year and the year before that and the year before that, except that we keep getting just a little bit better. And the more these assholes are distracted amongst themselves and with shit coins, the better. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's see, what do we want to do next? Oh, Senator Lummis introduces landmark Bitcoin bill. You want to know what's in it? Namcios tells us what's in it from Bitcoin Magazine. The bipartisan Bitcoin legislation by U.S. Senators Cynthia Lummis, 
from the Senate Banking Committee and Kristen Gillibrand from the Senate Agriculture Committee has finally been introduced months after the effort was first announced. The legislation coined the Responsible Financial Innovation Act, also referred to as Lummis-Gillibrand, seeks to encourage responsible innovation by integrating digital assets into existing laws and providing greater clarity to an industry that is largely unregulated and lacks common standards and defining measures. The text boasts 69 pages of detailed definitions and provisions. So, see, oh, sorry, SEC and CFTC, the watchdogs. The bill tasks the SEC and the CFTC with the bulk of the work as lawmakers strive to bring the broad cryptocurrency space under the umbrella of specific regulators once and for all. Good luck with that on Bitcoin. The SEC will regulate digital assets classified as securities, whereas the CFTC will be in charge of overseeing those that receive the commodity stamp. The bill itself contains language that will serve as a guiding evaluator for classifying digital assets into one of those two classes. <coughs> the Lummis-Gillibrand Act proposes an examination of the rights or powers entitled to the holder of a digital asset as well as that asset's inherent purpose. According to the bill, an ancillary asset is an intangible, fungible asset that is offered, sold, or otherwise provided to a person in connection with the purchase and sale of a security through an arrangement or scheme that constitutes an investment contract. The legislation uses the Howey test to determine that an ancillary asset provided to a purchaser under an investment contract is not inherently a security. In order to be classified as a security, the digital asset must provide the holder with a debt or equity interest in a business entity, liquidation rights or entitlement to interest or dividend payments from a business entity, profit or revenue share in a business entity derived solely from the entrepreneurial and managerial efforts of others or any other financial interest in the entity. Digital assets that are not fully decentralized and which benefit from entrepreneurial and managerial efforts that determine the value of the asset but are not debt or equity or don't create rights to profit or other financial interest in a business entity are not classified as securities as long as disclosures are filed with the SEC twice a year. This presumption that an ancillary asset is a commodity, commodity can be appealed in court. The legislation also grants that the CFTC exclusive spot market jurisdiction over all fungible assets which are not securities including ancillary assets. Exchanges will need to register with the CFTC to conduct trading activities and will need to abide by rules in the area of custody, customer protection, prevention of market manipulation, and information sharing. The CFTC will be allowed to charge a small fee on digital asset exchanges to cover increased cost to the agency. The assignment of the CFTC to oversee spot markets could help pave the way for a Bitcoin spot exchange traded fund inside the United States as the bulk of the SEC's argument against it relate to the lack of regulation on spot markets and the reluctance of exchanges to work with regulators. Both the SEC and the CFTC are also directed by the bill to study and report on the creation of a self-regulatory organization that could play a complementary role in working with regulators in the burgeoning market. Finally, 
The Responsible Financial Innovation Act also tasks the two watchdogs in consultation with the Treasury Secretary to develop a comprehensive set of guidances for digital asset intermediaries to think about their cybersecurity, including on the topics of security operations, risk identification and mitigation, sanctions avoidance, money laundering, and of course, terrorist financing. Surprised you didn't throw something about children in there. The agencies are expected to develop rules for such cybersecurity standards. Now, on energy. The Lummis-Gillibrand Act requires a, well, I guess it's a bill right now. Lummis-Gillibrand bill requires a study on the power consumption of digital assets. The study will seek to determine the best ways to encourage innovation while ensuring these technologies work together with other areas of society to help the world move closer to climate goals. Oh my God, through the deployment of more renewable energy sources and clean energy, as well as reducing energy waste. They're just paying, I think this is really, they're just paying lip service to get this bill through. This task will lie with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which will work in consultation with the CFTC as well as the SEC to conduct the study. One of its goals is to analyze the type and amount of energy used for mining. On the subject of taxes, as previously hinted at by Senator Lemus, the legislation will provide a tax exemption for capital gains that don't surpass $200 on a Bitcoin payment for goods and services. The measure encourages the use of digital assets as a medium of exchange. However, the bill notes that all transactions which are part of the same transaction or a series of related transactions will be treated as a single transaction and therefore amount to a single capital gains number for the purposes of the tax exemption. The bill goes one step further to declare that miners are not seen as brokers and that digital assets obtained from mining activities are not to be treated as income until they are converted into fiat currencies. Additionally, Lummis-Gillibrand also specifies that digital asset lending agreements are not generally taxable events. Similarly to securities lending transactions and provisions that certain decentralized autonomous organizations and business entities for tax purposes. However, this requires that the DAO, the D-A-O, be incorporated or organized under the laws of a jurisdiction as such. And lastly, on the taxation side, the bill requires the United States Internal Revenue Service to study and clarify issues such as forks and airdrops, uh, merchant acceptance of digital assets, mining and staking, charitable donations, and the legal characterization of stablecoins as indebtedness. As to a 401k, Lemmis-Gillibrand requires the Government Accountability Office to analyze the opportunities and risks associated with investing in digital assets with retirement accounts. GAO's findings are to be reported to Congress, the Treasury Department, and the Labor Department. Consumer protections, in an, in an attempt to enhance customer protections in the cryptocurrency markets, the bipartisan bill will require providers of digital assets to disclose information about their product, including source code versioning and the legal treatment of each digital asset. The bill also grants the right to a person to keep and control the digital assets that they own. Other provisions include provisions on stablecoins, such as requiring issuers to hold US dollars or dollar equivalents to enable redeeming by the customer at any given time in advise, uh, sorry, an advisory committee to watch and study the latest developments in the space and make recommendations so that regulations remain up to date and valid and clear definitions for the different types and styles of digital assets and their related technologies, markets, and practices. 
Senator Gillibrand said in an interview with CNBC on June the 7th that she thinks the bill is something the Senate will get behind. Quote, our goal is to make sure this goes through the four committees of jurisdiction. It takes a long time to build a regulatory framework for a new industry. Senator Gillibrand continued saying that she expects the bipartisan legislation to go through the Senate's Banking, Agriculture, Intelligence, and Financial Services Committees before being taken to the Senate floor. Quote, these committees will have pieces of the bill because they only regulate part of this industry. We think there's going to be a lot of momentum behind this bill, having met with most of the industry stakeholders and the experts of this field, and we're just going to work with them over time to continue to improve this bill. Well, my God, that was the four committees. Let's, the four horsemen of the apocalypse reads pretty much this way. Senate Banking, Senate Agriculture, Senate Intelligence and Financial Services Committee. That's the fucking four horsemen of the apocalypse, bro. No, I'm just kidding. What it does tell me, though, is that I think this bill has a very good chance of passing because they've included almost every stakeholder that they can. Not that that's good for us. I'm just saying that the bill has, I think, because of the way that it was structured, the way these guys are pacifying each one of these committees, because each one of these committees has something from their past. One of the reasons why each one of these committees was created in the first freaking place was to regulate or have some kind of oversight on something to do with commodities, financial regulation, and such. And since Bitcoin especially represents facets of all of those, then all of those committees had to be included. But what worries me is this, that we'll get some supra committee that will form after this happens. It'll take a long time, like a couple of decades, I think but some super committee that is an amalgamation of Senate Banking Committee, Senate Agriculture Committee, Senate Intelligence Committee, and Senate Financial Services Committee. And that they'll all come together and they'll sort of just kind of <clears throat> melt into just one great big chocolate bar. And that's a scary son of a bitch because at least at this point, these committees can somehow or another offset each other by being separate committees. But what I fear for the future is that these committees will collapse into one another and become some massive super organization. And, you know, maybe I'll just move to Costa Rica. I don't know, but we have to run the numbers. Flammable liquids on fire, except for gasoline. West Texas Intermediate up 0.8% to $119.55. Brent North Sea is up 0.94% to $120.66. Pausing to remind you, I just saw a report somewhere, probably out of CNBC, that this guy, I can't remember his name, is suggesting $150 oil. All right. Before we hit the $100 strike on both Brent, North Sea, and West Texas Intermediate, people that were calling for $100 oil were touted as being insane. Yeah, you can blame Biden, you can blame Putin, you can blame Russia, you can blame Ukraine. I, I, I honestly don't give a shit. 
Because if none of that had happened, the question remains, would we still have these kind of prices? Because people before all this shit began were calling for $100 oil and they were being pointed at and laughed at. Well, they're not laughing now because we got $120 oil and it was even higher yesterday. 150? Do you have any idea what that will do? Do you have, I don't even have any idea what that will do. I've never seen, I've never even heard of $150 oil. It's never occurred as far as I can tell in my lifetime. And if it has, it didn't stay there for very, very long. If we have $150 oil and it's sustained for any length of time, like say through an entire quarter, holy shit. I don't even know what it looks like on the other end of that. But be that as it may, natural gas is just down scant and it's sitting at $9.32 for 1,000 cubic feet. That's a lot of money for 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas. I'm used to $2 and a half, three bucks. That's what I'm used to. I'm certainly not used to looking at $9.32. Gasoline, wow, gasoline is down two points. However, it is sitting at $4.11 on the futures market. Gold is up over half a point to $1,854.50. Silver up one third of a point to $22.16. Platinum is down almost two points. Copper is down a third of a point. Palladium is down 1.68%. Agricultural futures are mostly down. Soybeans and corn are the winners today. Corn up two and a third point. Soybeans are up 1.68%. Everything else is down, and the biggest loser today is going to be sugar, down 2.61%. Wheat is down 2%. Coffee is down over 2%. Cotton is down almost 1%. Rough rice is down 1.25%. Dow is going to be, or is down, 0.07%, so we're kind of moving sideways. S&P down 0.02. NASDAQ future, or NASDAQ is up 0.09%. S&P mini up a scant tenth of one percentage point. Real money struggling again around, you know, 29, between 29 and $30,000. 29,852 bucks is your price on Bitcoin today with uh, 589,789 BTC changing hands in the last 24 hours. That is 25,000 BTC being sent every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 2.22 BTC, a median transaction value that is 0.019 BTC or about 567 bucks. Block times are hideously low. Eight minutes and 34 seconds, holy smokes. 0.069 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis. 11.63 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period with a 5.97% jump in hash rate. We are up to 230.39 exahashes per second. This is according to BitInfo charts. I think they may actually have lagging information because I saw something earlier this morning that suggested that we are not at 230 exahashes per second, that we were are really low, but Block times of 8 minutes and 34 seconds suggests otherwise. I think we're still high. Anyway, your shitcoin indicator is Doge, and it's sitting square at 8 United States pennies. There are 3,325 transactions waiting on three blocks to clear. Uh, We have a $568.8 billion market cap, which is 4.65% of gold's entire market cap, and we still 
yet may only purchase 16.1 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,060,679.68 of, and 3,978.5 of them are in the Lightning Network valued at $118.7 million being run over 17,136 nodes, sporting 84,143 payment channels that we know about, but only 71.9% of all that's being run over Tor's now 12,121 Lightning Network nodes that we know about. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. The business of a Bitcoin standard. Profit, people, and passion for good food. Cointelegraph's Joseph Hall is going to tell us a little about your and mine favorite Canadian restaurant, even though that we've probably never eaten there, Tahini's. The Canadian restaurant franchise Tahini's serves Middle East-inspired food with a Bitcoin-inspired twist. Since August 2020, when the price of Bitcoin was under $20,000, the group has operated on a Bitcoin standard with any profits it makes swept into BTC. <coughs> Excuse me, pardon me. The Tahini's Twitter account has since argued that Bitcoin is the most Islamic thing Muslims can do with their wealth, and the group educates its customers on sound money. It has even become a niche bear market meme, with Michael Saylor famously saying he might apply to work night shifts at Tahini's during January's price correction. Cointelegraph spoke with Ali Hamam, co-founder and chief marketing officer of Tahini's, to understand the whys, hows, and unintended consequences of operating under a Bitcoin standard. Hamam was the driving force of the Bitcoin adoption at the Middle East chain. Hamam first learned about Bitcoin in 2016 or 2017, but discarded the innovation as a Ponzi scheme or rat poison as he was dissuaded by its negative press. It took the COVID-19 pandemic and its real-world consequences for Hamam's, sorry, Hamam's Bitcoin light bulb moment to take place. In March of 2020, we got hit with lockdowns and the fear. Our sales at the restaurants dropped like 70% in a week. And yet, there was more money flowing around with our employees, our fellow Canadians. Everybody just had more money, end quote. Inspired by the writings of Robert Breedlove, a Bitcoin influencer and entrepreneur, sound money in the form of BTC dawned on him. Hamam said that he and his company needed to find a better way to store value. Money is going to be worthless, he said. Quote, it sort of clicked for me that this is a once-in-a-multi-generation type of breakthrough and invention. The idea of absolute fixed money is something that we've never seen in history, end quote. <clears throat> Hamam was hooked. He went all in, devouring Bitcoin-focused books, podcasts, and in some cases not sleeping as he educated himself and fell deeper down the rabbit hole. Quote, it grew into a way of life where it's like, okay, this is something that I should be integrating with every single aspect of my life from my kids' education funds all the way up to my business, end quote. Armed with freshly acquired knowledge, Hamam met with his business partners at Tahini's to pitch the idea of running the business on a Bitcoin standard. The argument behind having the Bitcoin standard, a term popularized by Saifedean Amis, author of the eponymous book, The Bitcoin Standard, is that not Bitcoin is, sorry, it's that, is that not Bitcoin is not just a better reserve currency than the US dollar, it's actually a superior currency. Consequently, the business should carve out a route with profits in, with Bitcoin in mind. 
for tahinis. That means keeping a working capital of roughly six months of expenses on hand. According to Hamam, quote, anything beyond that number is considered treasury and we sweep into Bitcoin. So some months we buy a little bit more aggressively when the price is down. And then the months after that will slow down a little bit. But we kind of have, depending on how much the company makes. To the doubters, Hamam said, we always try to manage it in a way where we never have to sell any Bitcoin. That's the key part. Hamam claimed that while he has gifted BTC to his family or friends, he has never sold it. Tahini's is working to put in place the infrastructure required to accept Bitcoin as payment. Thank God, finally. But the process is challenging, not due to regulation or payment processors, but because the franchise wants to hold the Bitcoin that it accepts. Quote, even if you're going to accept Bitcoin, work it out in a way where you never have to sell it, Hamam explained. The inevitable publicity bump that comes from jumping on the Bitcoin accepted here bandwagon is attractive, Hamam said. But... If you're selling your Bitcoin immediately after you receive it, then you don't really get Bitcoin, in my opinion. He's correct. Hamam <clears throat> mentioned that Strike Lightning network integration as an attractive proposition, as it would eliminate the high fees charged by MasterCard, but it's still pretty early to explore payment options when the priority is growing the business. Ultimately, in a developed economy like Canada, with comparably high levels of trust in institutions, Bitcoin is primarily a savings tool. Equally, Tahini's is not currently exploring paying salaries in BTC as the franchise does not want to force the cryptocurrency onto its staff. But that hasn't stopped Hamam from persuading Canada's conservative leadership candidate, Pierre Polivier, however you pronounce his name, from buying shawarma with Bitcoin on the Lightning Network after Hamam orange-pilled the heck out of him. It was the first Bitcoin transaction made at Tahini's performed by an increasingly pro-Bitcoin politician. On a personal level, Hamam and the more devout Bitcoiners among the management team raised questions such as, have you heard about Bitcoin? Did you know you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin? And even maybe you should think about putting a few dollars into Bitcoin retirement plans. Inevitably, the orange pilling is far more successful when the price is on a tear. If the price is dropping, it's more challenging. When China cracked down on crypto, for example, some of Hamam's management team freaked out a little bit. Indeed, the 300% gains Cointelegraph reported earlier this year have begun to melt away. Hamam said that his conviction was enough to steer the ship and settle his colleagues' nerves. Running a restaurant on a Bitcoin standard comes with a side of zealotry. While Hamam sings the premier cryptocurrency's praises, there's also a community of passionate BTC aficionados who back Tahini's investment decision and continue to offer support. Quote, the amount of love that I have for the Bitcoin community is, I can't even describe it, people that have never even tried our food, end quote. However, Hamam said that the Bitcoin community has not directly impacted sales as it's still a tiny, albeit vocal, community worldwide. Nonetheless, the business kept its head above water during the 2021 market turmoil and plans to expand to over, god damn, y'all, 25 franchises in 2022. <laughs> Yeehaw, bitches! Hamam is resolute in his decision to put the profits into Bitcoin, even in the face of a tumultuous economic backdrop. Quote, you're still going to gain the same benefits anyone else would gain or Michael Saylor would gain or Elon Musk would gain, end quote. The company has aligned itself with the mission of Bitcoin while, of course, serving great food to anyone. More and more companies could follow their lead and operate on a Bitcoin standard while Hamam joked 
there might be a Middle Eastern dish that riffs on the cryptocurrency hitting franchises soon. That should be interesting. Uh, this is a, this is a uh, company that I interviewed, like, I don't know, I want to say like well over a year ago. And I asked directly, it's like, what's it, what is it going to take to get you to accept Bitcoin at directly at your restaurants for the food that you serve? And I got pushback. He's like, dude, we don't work that way. We can't. We're a restaurant. We just can't do it. And the amount of shit that we got to do to put that crap into place is right now insurmountable. But one day, and I guess that day has now come. So congratulations to Tahini's for figuring it out and are now apparently putting themselves in place to at least start examining how they're going to start taking Bitcoin at the restaurants. Now they're not doing it right yet, but I think that they're, they're clearly a shit ton closer than when I interviewed them. So this should be fun to watch. If you are in Canada listening to this podcast, go support your local Tahini's if you can find one. God knows I wish I could do the, do it myself, but honestly, I, they're not a charity, so I don't want to just give them money and they, they're too far away that I'm not going to be able to go to a Tahini's and actually buy their food. So if you can do it for me and, and report back on, on, you know, how the shawarma is and how your experience was, please do so, man, because these guys deserve, uh, deserve our support. Now, Elon Musk, who may or may not deserve your support. And I don't know, you have to make that decision for yourself. Uh, we have this one, Liam Kelly, Decrypt.co. Twitter may not get its crypto-friendly owner. Elon Musk seeks exit from deal. And I'm not exactly sure if that headline is proper, but let's get into it. The latest chapter of Elon Musk's Twitter acquisition may be the saga's last. A new letter to Twitter's general counsel alleges that the company hasn't met its obligations in closing the deal. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO said he's been eager to gather precise data on spam and bot activity on the platform. In May, Musk said that the $44 billion acquisition was temporarily on hold until he could verify that fewer than 5% of Twitter users were fake. But according to Musk's counsel, Twitter has only ever provided details about its methodology for measuring such activity, not exactly how much of it occurs. Quote, Twitter's latest offer to simply provide additional details regarding the company's testing methodologies, whether through written materials or verbal explanations, is tantamount to refusing Mr. Musk's data requests, reads the letter prepared by Musk's attorneys. It continues by stating that Musk doesn't find these methodologies adequate and that he must conduct his own analysis. Perhaps most important, however, this tussle has been deemed a clear material breach of the two parties merger agreement and gives Musk the right to terminate the merger agreement altogether. Mm. <laughs> Scott Galloway says of, uh, of this, and he's, he's, I think Scott is, is a pretty knowledgeable dude in the space. He says, breach of agreement read, I made a stupid deal, but rules and laws don't apply to me. Okay, Scott, I, I am actually going to disagree with you. If this was part of the agreement, that Twitter, that Musk made with Twitter. Um, I, and I don't know who he's talking about here. That's, that's the other thing. Scott Galloway isn't saying whether or not he's on Musk's side or Twitter side. But if Musk made the agreement with Twitter and Twitter accepted the agreement that they would hand over this information, not methodologies, and they haven't handed over information, but methodologies, then that is in fact breach of the agreement. 
It just is. That's just the way this shit works. You can love him or hate him, but this is the way it is. If Twitter's not giving Musk what, what they agreed to give him, then they're in breach of the agreement. Anyway, Twitter shares are down about 3.4% to $38.81 as of this writing. If the deal falls through, the social media platform may never see a host of crypto-infused upgrades Musk has hinted at since the deal began gaining traction. I don't honestly think they give a shit. Besides becoming a crypto Twitterati's poster boy, Musk does actually have a few ideas about how to integrate Web3 technology into its platform. Uh, For starters, he'd look to tackle scams. Quote, if I had a Dogecoin for every crypto scam I see, I'd have 100 billion Dogecoins, he said in a recent interview. And if he knew better, and he probably does, he understands how ironic that statement is because Dogecoin has in fact turned into a scam. He also suggested using Dogecoin as payment options for Twitter's premium blue membership. Turning to crypto for payments has been a common thread running through Musk's plans when discussing the potential of turning Twitter into a WeChat-esque super app. He noted that crypto payments could become one such feature. Twitter has yet to comment publicly, but already several business and media experts have weighed in. Stephanie Rule of MSNBC reminded Twitter followers that Musk waived the right to due diligence in the merger agreement. Oh, that's interesting. Meaning that it should be much harder for him to exit the deal. Meanwhile, Brian Quinn, a Boston College law professor, indicated that today's news shows that Musk wants out uh, or something that will get leverage for a renegotiation of the price. Well, that's clearly what he's been doing because if he can get that, if he can get this shit to where he starts dropping the the share price, and if he can get, if he can find a ledge for that share price price to fall off on, and then bounce down around like I don't know, let's say thirty five bucks, then he's done quite a bit of damage, and now he gets to not have to pay forty four billion dollars for Twitter, but something more akin to thirty billion or probably less than that. So. I kind of, I mean, now there's that whole thing where he waived his right to due diligence. Okay, I'm going to actually have to see that shit in writing. Nobody is going to spend $44 billion and waive their right to due diligence. All right, so I get the feeling that there's something very, very wrong with that statement, but we ain't got time for it. We got better fish to fry. Where do we need to go next? Oh, 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 let's see here. (laughs) Epic Games CEO bashes crypto exchange over fake Fortnite tokens. Ladies and gentlemen, the trend has gone from ICOs and, or actually went from altcoin creation. And then we went into ICOs and then we went into DeFi. And now we're going into just outright scams of fake tokens. That's going to be, this is going to be the next trend. It's not that it hasn't happened. It's just that it hasn't trended. I get the feeling that this is our entry point into a trend of flat ass fake tokens that are indeed listed on exchanges. Epic Games CEO bashes crypto exchanges over fake Fortnite token. Kate Irwin, decrypt.co. Epic Games CEO and co-founder Tim Sweeney called out cryptocurrency marketplaces today for allegedly enabling unofficial and unauthorized cryptocurrencies bearing the Fortnite name. Fortnite is Epic's massively popular battle royale shooter game. First released in 2017, it now has more than 350 million registered users worldwide. Quote, 
There isn't a Fortnite cryptocurrency, Sweeney wrote. The Twitter accounts promoting such are thing such a thing are a scam. Epic's lawyers are on it. Also, shame on the cryptocurrency marketplaces that enable this kind of thing. He's not wrong. Specifically, Sweeney is referring to the Fortnite token or FNT, which is reportedly trading on decentralized exchanges Sushi Swap, of course, Pancake Swap, and Krona Swap. A quick search for the alleged scam tokens on those exchanges does not currently return any results, though these decentralized exchanges enable their users to trade virtually any token so long as those users manually input the token's contract address. Quote, this account is operating a scam, Sweeney wrote, referring to the Twitter account at Fortnite underscore token. Anybody involved in this is being scammed, he added in another response. The Twitter account behind the unauthorized Fortnite token tried to argue that it wasn't a scam, despite the CEO of Fortnite stating numerous times that it was. Quote, this is a fair launch, community-driven, Fortnite games fans-created cryptocurrency project with no specified owner or company structure behind it or a CEO deciding on its future, the token's account responded. Sweeney was not amused. Quote, you can't use the Fortnite name and images without permission to market an unrelated product, he replied. The alleged scammers are also encouraging Fortnite fans to mint NFTs with their tokens, which Sweeney called unsurprisingly a scam. Yeah, well, it's because it is. According to Nomics data, it appears that few are trading the FNT tw token. Since January, FNT is down 96% from its all-time high <clears throat> and is worth nearly zero. And I'm not even going to read the amount of zeros after the decimal place. In the past 24 hours, the token has only seen about $250 in total volume traded. This isn't the first time malicious actors have reportedly used Fortnite's branding without Epic's consent. Back in October, reports surfaced that scammers were promising gamers that they could exchange their V-Bucks, Fortnite's non-crypto digital currency, for dollars using an unauthorized Fortnite coin. While Epic Games doesn't have any Fortnite-related cryptocurrencies, the company is leaning into Web3. Gala Games' upcoming release, Grit, which features NFTs, will be the first blockchain game to be released on the Epic Games Store. NFTs are, well, we're not going to get it. You know what they are. They're fucking scams. Sweeney previously shared back in September, however, that Epic Games isn't touching NFTs as the whole field is currently tangled up with an intractable mix of, you name guessed it, scams. Today, he clarified his position. Quote, when new technology emerges, some put it to good use. Others put it to bad use. It would be terribly short-sighted to ban an entire field of technology for such a reason. Of course, Tim Sweeney. And of course, he's he has every... Okay, I'm just going to say, he's got every fucking right to be upset about this. This is bullshit. Right? Fortnite is a brand underneath the epic umbrella of brands. It's their property. Whatever you want to say about intellectual property and how it should be this and how it should be that, I, I guess I'm just not going to agree because why would I be incentivized to create anything to, if I wanted to write a series of books, let's say a, a series of fiction books, why would I be incentivized to do such a thing if I didn't hold the rights to that intellectual property, at least for a, 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 an amount of time? I don't want to do shit for free all the fucking time. I don't. I really don't. Why would Epic 
spend millions of dollars creating a brand only to not have its intellectual property under its own control. What? Nobody does this shit. Nobody does this shit. Why would you build a house and let somebody else move? And if somebody else moved into the house, like the you hammer in the last nail and here comes this family and you don't know this fucking family and they move into your house that you spent all this time building. How's that fair? And somebody, I know somebody listening to this is on the side of there should be no intellectual property at all. And I'm not going to put you down for it. I'm, I'm not, but this is, this is my stance. How is it that somebody like Epic Games, and yes, they, they suck. I don't like Epic Games either. I think it's a, the, the whole video game industry is fucking terrible right now and has been for years. But that still doesn't eviscerate or excavate the fact that they own intellectual property on Fortnite. And these assholes are out there spinning up like bullshit NFT tokens on, you guessed it, the Ethereum fucking blockchain. It's probably an ERC-20 or an ERC-4165 or whatever else scam protocol that they've produced because Ethereum enabled all this shit to occur. You can, you, you can spin up anything you want and it's going to be an intellectual property nightmare for corp, the corporate world that is trying to retain their IP. I'm not a friend of the corporate world, but I'm also not a friend of people who want to take my rights for intellectual property creation and be able to hold that intellectual property for my own value. I don't agree with that shit. So I got it. It's sort of like, well, not exactly sure. Like I, I am a big second amendment freak. And there's a whole bunch of people out there that are saying, we need to do away with the second amendment. Well, if you do that, then all the shit you do care about instantly goes away. Not because I need to stand out there with an AK, you know, um, um, like immediately trying to defend your rights to free speech. It's just, you set a precedent that one of the bill of rights amendments went away. Well, all the other ones fall. So if I don't want to protect corporate, you know, the corporate West intellectual property rights, then I can't protect my own. And you, I may not like the corporate world, just like somebody here may not like the second amendment, but you need to defend that shit. Otherwise you lose your right to the same shit. Don't do that. Don't be, don't be that short-sighted. Think for the long term. What does it mean to say we shouldn't have intellectual property rights? What does it mean in the long term to say we should get rid of the second amendment and like literally ban, ban any kind of firearm whatsoever. And by the way, good luck with that. What does it mean though? Long-term, not short-term, not to assuage whatever fears that you feel because somebody shot up a school or these idiots are, you know, manufacturing Fortnite tokens. Not that those are comparable in any way, shape or form, but still that's the way, that's what we're talking about here. So there we go. We have to think long-term about what it means to get rid of, get rid of intellectual property. What it means long-term to get rid of the second amendment. What it means long-term to get rid of the third, fourth, first, Eighth, ninth, or tenth amendments. What does that mean? What does it mean to get rid of the tenth amendment long term? We got to think about these things. Anyway, uh, we're running long here. It's 63 minutes and eight seconds into the podcast. It is time where I leave you, and I do not have a joke today, but I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.